There is nothing in all of this world more important than the prophetic Word of God. And it is your duty to love the Word of God. It is your duty to read the Word of God. It is your duty to meditate upon the Word of God. It is your duty to sit under the preaching of the Word of God if for no other reason than that God Himself is glorified in heaven. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark. The Gospel of Mark and this morning chapter 6. Our New Testament reading as always will be our sermon text and we move into a new section of the Gospel of Mark. I want to begin reading in verse 1 and I'll just read down through verse 6. Now hear the word of our God. He, that is speaking about Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's holy and pure word. Please be seated as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we come this morning before this text of Scripture, which really grips us in terms of the attitude and the hearts of the citizens of Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth, their despising of our Savior, their rejection of our Savior is stunning. And yet in all of this, we recognize it is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that he would be despised and rejected. We would despise and reject him were it not for the secret operation of your blessed spirit to change our hearts and our view of Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would love Christ more even as we study this passage, that we would recognize him for who he is, the prophet of all prophets, the priest of all priests, and the King of all kings. Help us as we study this passage, we pray, in the blessed name of Christ our Savior. Amen. As one studies the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are several themes that become clear throughout one's interpretation of Scripture. It is clear, regardless of what sort of hermeneutic you may begin with, 
That is, what sort of lens you are looking through to understand the primary message of the Word of God that Christ is central to both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is clearly symbolized. Jesus is clearly typified by events in the Old Testament, by persons in the Old Testament, by positions in the Old Testament. The Old Testament roles of prophet and priest and king, we learn not from our own minds or human opinion or scholars, but from the New Testament itself that these roles of prophet, priest, and king find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this in chapter 8, that it pleased God and His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and Savior of His church the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. And that is true. Jesus, as a prophet, was confirmed in the New Testament by the apostles. Very early on, after Christ's resurrection, the apostle Peter, for instance, speaks in Solomon's portico, and he speaks about the fact that Christ was appointed whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. And Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That was the Apostle Peter quoting from the Old Testament book, of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. As the incarnate Word of God, Jesus, as we read in John 1, 1, was in the beginning with God. He is the Word of God. He became the final voice of God to His redeemed people. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. That is to say that Jesus' incarnation was the beginning of the last days of human history. He fulfills the role of prophet. He also, of course, fulfills the role of priest. The author of Hebrews is clear about this, not to go any sort of detailed study this morning, but we read that Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed to be a high priest by God, who said, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews there is, again, using the Old Testament as his authority, quoting from Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews also quotes from the book of Leviticus as his authority to show that Jesus is the final high priest. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of relying upon the Old Testament to see that Jesus fulfills these titles of prophet and of priest. Of course, Jesus fulfills the title as king as well. 
There's really too many texts to run through, but for example, you know that the angel Gabriel came to Mary in Luke 1.33 and said that Jesus would be great, he would be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Or the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he shall be called mighty Father, Prince of Peace, Everlasting God, and the government shall be upon His shoulder. It is clear that Jesus is the final prophet, He is the final priest, and He is the final King. And it is also clear that as we go through Mark's Gospel, more and more and more people will reject that He fulfills any of those titles. It may also surprise you to know that Mark, as he gives this record of our Lord's life, also wants us to see that Jesus fulfills these roles of prophet, priest, and king. All the way back at the beginning of Mark, in chapter 1, Mark began by opening up, telling us that Jesus was the final king. In verse 2, Mark tells us of chapter 1 that Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. Mark is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. And what occurred in ancient times that the king's men would prepare the highway for the king as a royal road for him to walk on, announcing his visit to a particular city or a village. So too the prophets and the last prophet, John the Baptist, was part of the king's men traveling ahead to prepare the royal road for the coming of the Messiah. That's how Mark's gospel began. And not only by pointing to Jesus as a king, but also by pointing to him as a prophet. Because John the Baptist was a preacher, verse 7, who said, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. There is coming a greater preacher and a greater prophet than even me, John the Baptist says. And that is why before we even get out of chapter 1, it says in verse 38 that Jesus told the disciples, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. I came into the world to be a preacher. I came into the world to be a prophet. I came into the world to be the final voice of God to the world. To announce the gospel, the good news of salvation. Jesus is a prophet and a king. And Mark wants us to know that. And just on a side note, Mark also highlights the fact that Jesus fulfills the role of priest. Do you remember in chapter 2... Um, Jesus allowed his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. And when he was challenged by the religious leaders, Jesus pictured himself being like Abiathar, the high priest, who allowed David's men to eat the showbread in the temple, which was technically a violation of the law of God. And Jesus told the religious leaders, I've done nothing wrong by allowing my disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath. I am fulfilling Abiathar, the high priest who allowed David to eat of the showbread in the temple. Perhaps even more explicit in Jesus identifying himself as a priest was when he authoritatively declared in the same chapter, Mark chapter 2, to the paralytic 
as he was lowered through the roof and laid at his feet, that his sins were forgiven. That was something only priests had the power to do. Priests in the Old Old Testament acted as mediators in offering sacrifices, mediators between God and man. They ministered at God's altar, ensuring that the sacrifices that were offered were offered according to God's prescriptions. Otherwise, the people would not be cleansed from their sin until the priests themselves made atonement for their error in offering those sacrifices. And here Jesus tells the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. It is clear, therefore, that Jesus is the final prophet, He is the final priest, and He is the final king. But as we move into chapter 6 of Mark, what we want to focus on is the fact that He is the final prophet. So far, the people of Galilee have responded favorably to Jesus. Their faith has been pointed out, whether it was the faith of the demoniac, whether it was the faith of the woman with the hemorrhage that would not stop, whether it was the faith of Jairus, who clearly had faith. Jesus acknowledged the faith of all three of these. Or other people there in Galilee, there was faith present. Chapter 5 might well be called the faith chapter. And if that is the case, then chapter 6 needs to be called the non-faith chapter. The chapter begins by Jesus going to His hometown of Nazareth to preach, and He is rejected by those who know Him best. No faith. Then we see Herod having no faith killing John the Baptist. We see a lack of faith even with the disciples in chapter 6. And really, it's not until we come to the end of chapter 6 that we see some semblance of faith. Verse 56 says that wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. They had the faith like the woman who had the hemorrhage in chapter 5, that if they touched just the fringe of His garment, they would be healed, but not those who knew Jesus best. If the funeral mourners in chapter 5 laughed at Jesus, then Jesus' own relatives and friends looked down upon Him as He preached this sermon in Nazareth. People of Galilee were largely enamored with Jesus And though their faith may have been superficial, maybe it didn't reach the level of saving faith for everyone. Many of them just wanted to be healed from their sickness. There is a stark contrast here as we move into chapter 6 because in Galilee, that is larger Galilee, in Capernaum, Jesus was not openly and brazenly rejected like He was by His own townspeople, relatives, and friends. Jesus' mesmerizing miracles and penetrating preaching could not be denied. The people of Nazareth didn't deny it, just like the religious leaders didn't deny that He had power. You remember this back in chapter 3. They could not deny that He had power to do all the things that He did and to preach the way that He did. So what did they do? They accused Him, Mark 3.22, that He was possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And that's how He cast out demons. They said that because they couldn't deny His power. Ironically, it was the scribes and Pharisees who were the true hounds of hell. They were the ones possessed by demons. They were the ones influenced by Satan. And they put our Savior to death upon the cross. Jesus was God's only begotten Son, as the Westminster Confession says. The mediator between God and man. The prophet, the priest, and the king, the head and Savior of the church. But as chapter 6 opens up, 
we see that the citizens of Nazareth where Jesus grew up were no different than the religious leaders. As a matter of fact, there is a passage in the Gospel of John in chapter 8 where Jesus told the religious leaders, you remember this, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus had claimed that he was the son of God. He had claimed that he was deity. And he told them that I'm not the one that is possessed by Beelzebul. You are of your father, the devil. At the end of John chapter 8, the Bible says they picked up stones to kill him. Well, as Jesus goes to Nazareth to preach, it may surprise you to know that the people there are no different than the scribes and Pharisees. Because earlier in Jesus' ministry, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had returned to Nazareth to preach in the synagogue shortly after his temptation, and he was so vilified and so rejected that they chased him out of the synagogue and out of the city to the brow of the hill upon which Nazareth was built and tried to throw him off to kill him. He supernaturally escaped. We read about that in Luke chapter 4. On that occasion, Jesus preached from the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus said that He was the Anointed One. He had just been anointed by the Spirit in the waters of baptism. The Spirit of God had come upon Him. And He said, today, this prophecy is fulfilled, which is another way of saying that He was the coming Messiah. After Jesus read His text that morning in Luke chapter 4, He then began to read the hearts of the people in that synagogue And he rebuked them for their hard-heartedness. He said that they were just like the Israelites during the days of Elijah and Elisha who would not receive the prophetic word of God. And that's when they chased him out to the brow of the hill to throw him out. He supernaturally escaped and yet brazenly returns yet again several months later as Mark records here in Mark chapter 6. This is a count really is a stunning account. It warns us not only regarding the significance of the preaching of God's Word, but also the authority of God's Word. To reject God's Word is to reject God Himself. To reject God's Word is to reject the final prophet of all prophets. This is why Jesus constantly said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We are never to think that we have arrived at spiritual or theological perfection. Jesus' own hometown, the citizens of that hometown were so familiar with Jesus that they didn't think He had anything to offer them, anything to teach them. They really did what Israel did to all the prophets that God sent to Israel. You remember when Stephen was martyred, he referred to the Israelites in Acts 7 verse 51 as a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, just as their fathers did. Stephen said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before and the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That was Stephen. Stephen also, in that speech that he gave, said in verse 37 that it was Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That prophet is Jesus Christ and you killed the final prophet of all prophets. 
on this day, Jesus would be rejected by the people of his own hometown. But that would not change the fact that Jesus is the final prophet. His voice is meant to be heard. His voice is meant to be heeded. And that is the great lesson in this account. This account also teaches us our responsibility to point people to Jesus Christ. Reminds us that such will not be easy. Because right after this occasion, Jesus sends the disciples out to preach the good news. People don't think they need Jesus. People don't want salvation. They want entertainment. This sort of hardness and depravity of heart that we see in Nazareth is but a microcosm of what we see in the world today, and yet we still have a responsibility to speak forth God's Word. We have a responsibility to open God's Word. When we open God's Word, the very mouth of Jesus opens and speaks to us when we open our Bibles. The result of not listening to God's voice, to the prophetic Word of God, ends up only in one thing, and that is judgment. We must take heed to ourselves because God's judgment can come upon us just as it came upon the citizens of Nazareth when we reject the prophetic voice of Jesus Christ. So that is the theme of verses 1-6, through the theme of Christ's prophethood. really bleeds out through this passage, and we're going to go through these verses uh, fairly rapidly, but as we go through these verses, the one thing that I want you to see is that Jesus, the prophet of all prophets, the one who was to be honored above all, was the very prophet of God who was honored least. The lesson to be sure is that we must honor Him. You must honor this prophet. You must embrace Jesus, the prophet. For he is not merely a prophet. He is also a priest who can remove your sins. And he is a king who has the authority to throw you into hell or to rescue you from hell and to take you to heaven. So let's talk about this prophet. In verses 1 through 6, There are four prophetic words that we do well to pay attention to. First, we see a prophetic duty. Secondly, a prophetic despising. Third, a prophetic disappointment. And fourth, a prophetic departure. Notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 and 2a, a prophetic duty. Look at your Bibles. Verse 1 says, He, that is Jesus, went away from there. Now, there refers to Capernaum. That was Jesus' headquarters for his Galilean ministry. He is leaving there after preaching many messages and performing many miracles for several months. He, He will not return there. He is done in Capernaum. He is now moving on. And where does he go first? Verse 1 says he came to his hometown. Verse 1 does not tell us that it is Nazareth, but we know from other passages that that is where Jesus grew up. Why does he go to Nazareth? Well, probably because hostility from the religious leaders is rising. Nazareth was an obscure town. He is going to more of a secluded area away from the population. Not only that, but Herod was hot on the heels of John the Baptist, and he had a palace close to Capernaum in the city of Tiberias. And so Jesus is escaping notice from Herod. He travels to his hometown, as I said, Nazareth, which is such an obscure village 
that Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Not only that, but it's not mentioned in the Jewish writings of the Mishnah or the Talmud, and even Josephus, the great Jewish historian, never mentions Nazareth. It was a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. In fact, it wasn't until Constantine in the year A.D. 325 that a church was even established. And even there today, beneath the churches of Annunciation and St. Joseph, there are caves that archaeologists believe to be caves that were there during the days of Jesus. A nothing town, and that is what is so amazing about this account. The very thing that put Nazareth on the map, namely that Jesus grew up there, though he wasn't originally from there, was the very thing this town rejected. Some 25 miles southwest of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee, this little village, Nazareth, set on only 60 acres um, on a rocky hillside. If you blinked, you would have missed it. Today, it's about 60,000 people, but in Jesus' day, it would have been anywhere from 200 to 500 people. It is more than probable that Jesus knew everyone in this little village. He was from Bethlehem originally, born there, Micah 5.2 tells us, and also Matthew chapter 2. He was of the tribe of Levi, and uh, of Judah, that is, and those in the tribe of Judah settled in Nazareth. Jesus grew up in their synagogue. Jesus was in their homes. Jesus was in their schools. And as a carpenter, Jesus had done work for many in his hometown. Mark 1.9 tells us that he went from Nazareth to the Jordan to be baptized to begin his public ministry. And shortly after that, after his temptation in the wilderness, he had returned, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, I mentioned it earlier, to preach in the synagogue, and they had already rejected him one time. Now he is returning, and he is returning, although he is escaping from the eyes of Herod, he is uh, not escaping hostility. This would have been a hostile environment. Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Mark points that out in Mark 1.24 and chapter 10 and chapter 16. Chapter 14 and verse 67 refers to him as Jesus the Nazarene. That's what he was known as. This was his hometown. And so this homegrown preacher returns home. But what I want you to take note of is that this was no social visit of friends and family. This was a business trip. And we know that because of the end of verse 1. Notice your Bibles, it says, and his disciples followed him. His disciples followed him. That was typical of rabbis. They would always have their students or their disciples follow them to their various teaching appointments. Jesus would use this occasion, I believe, for training for the disciples. That was at least one reason he returned. If you look with me at verse 7, it says, He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave authority over the unclean spirits. He sent them out. He sent them out on their own. But before that, Jesus would use this little synagogue, the very synagogue he grew up in, the very synagogue where the older women held him as a child, the very synagogue whose elders would have considered him like their own son, where he had peers that he played with as a child and grew up with as a teenager, this little synagogue would serve as a preaching lab for the disciples. The twelve would be sent out, their duty would be to preach the gospel, and Jesus would make it clear that his duty when he went to synagogue was to be the guest speaker and to preach. 
These disciples needed to know that every time they opened their mouths to preach, there would be hard hearts of stone, much like the hard soil in Jesus' parable upon which the seed was cast. On this day, the seed would be cast by the voice of Jesus, and Jesus would yet again be rejected. He wanted the disciples to understand that ministry would be messy, times would be tough, they would be infamous, not famous, they would be rejected, not embraced, and what better place to demonstrate this on even a personal level than in the synagogue whose members, the last time Jesus preached, chased him out and tried to kill him. Now I say on a side note that if they showed students in seminary how difficult and trial-ridden ministry would be, I dare say there would be no students left. Most ministers, if you interview them, will tell you that people are difficult, that their own sin is great, and that success is so rarely seen that it is enough to drive anyone into dark depression. What is it that keeps a man in the pastorate when it's so painful? What is it that kept the disciples preaching the gospel though they were hated and rejected? Here is the answer, and this is the only answer. It is the reality that a pastor, like the disciples, is a man who is called to preach. He has one duty, one principal duty, and that is to proclaim the Word of God. Jesus, by example, sets that precedent here in this synagogue. He wants the disciples to know that no matter how hard things may get, He is calling preachers to Himself. He is calling preachers to Himself, not politicians. Churchmen, not chaplains. Ministers, not counselors. And they better get ready to fulfill their duty in spite of the rejection they will receive. And so, this little synagogue will serve as a preaching lab for these disciples to teach them the importance of fulfilling their duty to preach the gospel. And so notice your Bibles. We begin to read at the beginning of verse 2, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. That's why he went. It was his custom, Luke 4 says, to go to synagogue. But on this occasion he was the primary speaker. Now you remember in chapter 5, Jesus met a man named Jairus who was an elder and a synagogue official in Capernaum. And we noted the fact that uh, someone like Jairus would have had the duties to care for the synagogue building, to preserve the scrolls, to enlist various speakers, and to distribute prayers. There would have been someone like Jairus in the synagogue at Nazareth that Jesus would have known. He had come to his hometown to preach, being lined up as a guest speaker. We don't know the details this day of his text because Mark does not give it. Uh, We don't even know why the town would have invited him back. We can speculate they invited him back because earlier when they had chased him out, he had really yet to perform any miracles. But now in Galilee, greater Galilee and Capernaum, he had become so famous that it would be foolish for this little town not to associate with the most famous person that had ever come from them. But they had hard hearts of unbelief. On this particular morning, as Jesus stood in the synagogue to teach, The synagogue attendant would have handed him a scroll upon which Jesus would have received it. He would have read the text. He would have then rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and assumed the position of a Jewish teacher, which was that of being seated down. 
He would then address the congregation with a doctrinal exposition of the very passage that he just read. Now, I want to say this. As the prophet of prophets, Jesus, although he went to Nazareth to escape Herod, although he went there because they invited him, although he went there to teach the disciples what their duty was by example, that is to preach, the primary reason he went was to fulfill his duty as the heaven-sent, only begotten Son of God, final prophet of prophets. He was a preacher first and foremost. And the only way that people could receive salvation is if he would open his mouth and proclaim the word. What better place to go than the synagogue where all the supposedly religious people gathered to hear the voice of this prophet? Like all called preachers, Jesus simply could not keep his mouth shut No matter the danger, no matter the rejection, no matter the threats. And unlike all other preachers, this was the very Word of God incarnate itself. Heaven sent to the synagogue. You know, one of the lessons is that as powerful as God's prophetic Word and His voice are, even that will fall on deaf ears apart from the secret operation of the Spirit. On this day, the Holy Anointed One The one anointed by the Spirit of God at his baptism as the Spirit lighted upon him as a dove, that very one filled with the Spirit would preach the Word of God and though the Spirit was present, the Spirit was not operative upon the dead souls that filled the pews in that synagogue. The halls of this synagogue echoed the very voice of God, the prophetic Word incarnate. And as we will see, they rejected him. Which leads us to ask a question, why would he go and do this? Why would Jesus go and do this knowing that he would be rejected? I think the answer is found in Luke chapter 4. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 4. I've mentioned it several times. This is the record of the first instance Jesus went uh, to Nazareth to preach. But there's a, a little summary expression here in verses 14 and 15 which is a preface to Jesus returning to Nazareth to preach, which I think is helpful. Verse 14 says, as recorded by Dr. Luke, that Jesus returned, notice this, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out throughout all the surrounding country. Now watch this. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. By all. That's why Jesus did it. And I want to tell this church that even when there is no response on earth, there is always a response in heaven. When the prophetic word of God is proclaimed, God is glorified. When you speak the truth to unbelievers, God is glorified even when there is no response. Even when the Spirit of God is not operative upon their soul. You have a responsibility to speak forth the truth of God's Word. And when God's prophetic Word goes forth, He is glorified. That is why, as Reformed people, we love theology and we love doctrine. That is why, as Reformed people, when we open up the Bible, the mouth of Christ is opening and we want to listen and embrace every word and every morsel as if it is bread from heaven dropping into our mouths to feed us and to nurture us so that we can grow spiritually. And even when there is no response, 
even when there is no salvation, even when sanctification seems limited and our growth seems retarded, God is still glorified. We proclaim the prophetic word even when nobody listens. Why do we do that? Here's the reason. Because Jesus did it. Jesus knew He would be rejected as the prophet in His own synagogue and He still did it because by proclaiming the prophetic word, He was glorified. There is nothing in all of this world more important than the prophetic word of God. And it is your duty to love the word of God. It is your duty to read the word of God. It is your duty to meditate upon the Word of God. It is your duty to sit under the preaching of the Word of God if for no other reason than that God Himself is glorified in heaven. Even when you see a lack of response from those that you know and those that you see with your own eyes. God is glorified. And that is why we as Christians live the Christian life. To glorify God. God is glorified through His prophetic word. But now let's move on the account. Because sadly we see not only a prophetic duty, but secondly a prophetic despising. This is absolutely shocking. But verse 2 tells us that at first there was at least a superficial positive response to Jesus. It says, and many who heard him as he preached, were astonished. That's an interesting Greek word. It literally means to strike or to blast. Uh, This congregation was struck in their souls as if a cannonball had hit each congregant. Each person sitting there that day felt felt as if God was speaking to them alone. The blast of Christ's voice trumpeted loudly in the synagogue, riveting their attention. And they were astonished. Why were they so astonished? Why were they so struck? Well, because unlike other rabbis and even the elite scribes and Pharisees who had spoken from the lectern in the synagogue in years past, they were astonished because Jesus spoke, first of all, authoritatively. Jesus grounded all of His words in Scripture, not in tradition or the opinions of man. We read about this in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. When He had finished speaking, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Luke 4.32 tells us they were astonished at His teaching because His Word possessed authority. They're astonished because He speaks authoritatively. But they're also astonished because He speaks intelligently. His sermons were so Scripture-saturated and doctrinally deep that they were struck to the core and could not resist acknowledging the fact that this was the very voice of God. We read in John chapter 7, that they marveled at Jesus and they said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And Jesus actually answered them on that occasion and He said, my teaching is not mine, but it is His who sent me. That's very interesting to me because Jesus essentially is saying that when He preached, He wasn't going to talk about Himself. There are many preachers, in fact, too many preachers that only talk about themselves. 
They only talk about themselves, their opinions, their experiences. It's all about them. If Jesus Christ did not even speak about Himself, then what right do preachers have to spend all of their time in the pulpit speaking about themselves and their experiences and their commitment to God? That wasn't Jesus. He spoke authoritatively. He spoke intelligently. His sermons were scripturally saturated. They were doctrinally deep. He read the Old Testament Scripture. He quoted the Old Testament Scripture. He explained the Old Testament Scripture. And that's why they were astonished. Because his preaching was marked by authority. He spoke authoritatively. Scripture saturated. He spoke intelligently, doctrinally deep. And that is why he spoke powerfully. Because his sermons were scripturally saturated and doctrinally deep, they were also penetratingly powerful. That is a pattern of form that I think every preacher should follow. If that was Jesus' habit, to simply speak the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to explain the Word of God, that should be the pattern of every preacher. And so make no doubt about it, underline it in your Bible, it was undeniable that they had never heard anyone speak like this man in their entire lives. They were struck to the core at his preaching. But this didn't last long before their skepticism took over. They began to ask a series of questions. Like this one. Notice in verse 2, they said, where did this man get these things? You see, Jesus was not rabbinically trained. And that is why they said in John chapter 7, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They couldn't understand it. Even when Jesus was a child, you remember in John chapter 2, his parents accidentally left him there, and he is sitting there at the temple among the teachers. Luke 2.47 says, listening to them and asking them questions. And the Bible says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. For someone not rabbinically trained led this congregation to ask, where did this man get these things? How does he come up with what he said? But not only that, they also asked, notice verse 2, and what is the wisdom given to him? You see, his words of wisdom were unparalleled for one untrained. This is like asking, where are his credentials? I mean, where is his study? Where are his framed diplomas on the wall? They're non-existent. How does he say these things? How does he have such wisdom? And then they say at the end of verse 2, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Three questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such works done by him? I mean, they're asking where, what, and how. His words of wisdom and his works of wonderment struck them with the undeniability of his raw power. This was a stunning experience for all present. The words of his mouth, coupled with the works of his hands that they had heard about in the performing of miracles, left them mesmerized and struck the core of their hearts. And yet, in spite of all of this, their small-town mentality was one of pride and rejection. They had the ridiculous notion they knew better than he did 
because they knew him better than anyone else. That's the point of the passage. Make no mistake about it, they knew deep down that God was speaking to them. But like the religious leaders, they were filled with pride and they rejected their very own. We read the following in Luke chapter 19 that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. That's exactly what was happening on this day. These people were thinking exactly what Nicodemus said. Remember, Jesus was approached by Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. These people knew that Jesus had come from God, and yet they rejected him. Jesus didn't think, think this, but or he didn't say this, but perhaps he did think what he said in John chapter 10. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do the works of my Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I mean, how much evidence did they need? They had heard all of the reports of all the miracles he had performed in Capernaum and the surrounding areas. They knew that he had supernaturally escaped from their grips when they tried to throw him off the cliff. They knew that he was a boy wonder in the temple answering questions and asking questions and talking deeply about theology. And yet, in all of this, their skepticism just continued to grow. And they continued to despise Jesus of Nazareth. Notice with me in verse 3. They just ask more questions. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and and the brother of James and Joses and Judas and, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Is not this the carpenter? That continues their thinking. Instead of focusing on their on Jesus' clear divinity, they're lost in his humanity. Isn't this just the carpenter? How is the one who is trained and skilled to be a carpenter? Act so confidently as if he can be skilled in the Word of God and handle it. Matthew 13.55, by the way, makes it clear that Jesus himself was not only a carpenter, but he was the son of a carpenter. His father had reared him in the trade that made him successful, and that's what most Middle Eastern men did. He was a tectone, a carpenter, a worker of stone or a worker of wood. That word tectone in the Greek is where we get our English word architect. You can hear it even in the sounding out of the word. Justin Martyr in the second century said that uh, there were reports circulating that Jesus made yokes and plows for the farmers there in Nazareth. During Jesus' boyhood, Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch of Galilee, drafted artisans from the surrounding villages to construct his capital, which was only four miles from Nazareth. And it is interesting, I think, to speculate that he could have hired Joseph and Jesus to work upon his capital. We don't know. But Herod would be the very one that would mock Jesus prior to his crucifixion. He was a carpenter by trade, not a preacher. And that's exactly the way of their thinking. 
He's not working in his field of expertise. He has no training. He has no degree in the art of speaking or theology. This guy, we have known our whole lives that we have hired to build and repair things. What does he know? Why does he come across acting as if he is some expert in theology? There are fables and legends in apocryphal books that depict Jesus as a boy doing miracles. In the infancy gospel of Thomas, I don't recommend that you read that, depicts Jesus as raising clay birds for his playmates to play with, clay birds that come to life. There are many other such stories, all of which are absolutely ridiculous and false, because number one, we know that Jesus never performed miracles for his own well-being. He never performed miracles for worldly entertainment. And in fact, he only chided people for being mesmerized by his power and judged them for wanting to see signs and miracles. He never rewarded them when they came with such superficial motives. And even more to the point, if such miracle stories were true, then the congregation this morning, this morning, would have viewed Jesus much differently than they did. They were despising Jesus. Is not this the carpenter? And sadly, their questions turned to accusations. Notice verse 3 again very closely. They sarcastically and even crassly say, Is this not the Son of Mary? Now, you might not recognize this, but this is a low blow. This is a punch below the belt. All Middle Eastern boys, practically without exception, were referred to in connection with their father. This was legally the way that you had a surname. You were the son of who, whatever your father's name was. Here they say, the son of Mary. Now this is not some veiled veneration of Mary as the Roman Catholic Church wrongly venerates her. As bad as that is, this is far worse. This uh, is not an honorable thing that they are saying by referring to Jesus as the son of Mary. No, legally and culturally, Jesus was the son of Joseph, although he had been supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. This is not so much a question as much as it is an accusation. They are revealing their belief that Jesus was an illegitimate son. Joseph wasn't worth mentioning because he was nothing more than a baby daddy to Jesus. Oh, we know Jesus. He's the son of that whore, Mary. And we know of her immorality. That is exactly the attitude of their hearts. It's very hard to imagine that the holy, pure Son of God would hear remarks like that, the despising, the shame, the rejection. And from a human standpoint, it must have cut him deeply. And yet they doubled down in their despising of Jesus. Notice this note about his family in verse 3. Is this not the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? James, of course, later was converted and became a leader in the Jerusalem church. Judas, there is a reference to Jude who penned the book of the Bible we know as Jude, the other siblings we don't know much about. And then the end of verse 3 says, Are not his sisters here with us? 
Jesus had sisters as well. We know from earlier in chapter 3 and verse 21, on another occasion when Jesus was preaching, Mark says in Mark 3.21 that his family heard it. They went out to seize him or arrest him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So even Jesus' own family, his relatives, thought he was crazy. John 7.5 says not even his brothers were believing in him. And so this is the mentality of the congregation. Here is Jesus coming off like he's an expert, coming back, we know this guy, he's a carpenter, even his family thinks that he is crazy. Why should we believe what he says? Jesus was part of a large family. The so-called perpetual virginity of Mary is undue veneration by the Roman Catholic Church. Mary was a normal sinner saved by God's grace just like us. She was used by God supernaturally to bear the Christ child and to rear the Christ child, but she had her own family with Joseph, several siblings. And they all knew this family, the people of Nazareth. And they despised this family because of rumors of illegitimacy, the familiarity of everything. And so notice the end of verse 3, it says, this is their concluding thoughts. They took offense at him. They took offense at him because of all of this. Scandalizo is the Greek word. It's where we get our English word scandal. The Greek word literally means to stumble. This occurs eight times in Mark's gospel without exception referring to, listen to this, obstructions that keep people from coming to saving faith. That's the point to see. There was no saving faith this morning in this sermon as Jesus preached. He was a scandalizo. He was a stumbling block. They stumbled over his scripture-saturated, doctrinally deep, penetratingly powerful sermon because in their pursuit to understand how Jesus could say what He said and do what He did, they became so mesmerized and skeptical that they tripped over their biased positions, their closed-mindedness and false accusations. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. That's exactly what Jesus was. Jesus, as I said, was a carpenter. He would have constructed things, perhaps even working in masonry with stone before he became a preacher. And uh, stonemasons and builders of different buildings used selected stones that they would examine for their quality and their durability As they would go through this process, they would reject the stones they didn't want. Jesus worked in that field, and isn't it interesting that Scripture is very clear, Psalm 118, that Jesus is the rejected stone of Israel. Here is this cornerstone. The apostles are present in the synagogue. Jesus is center stage as the cornerstone. The apostles who are the foundation of the church surround Him with eyes glued on Him, and He is rejected by the people of his hometown, cast away, rejected. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of Jesus when he said that he was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53.3 I hope that you aren't scandalized or embarrassed by Jesus today because what happened in Nazareth, as I said, is a microcosm of many in the world today. The most religious people of Nazareth were in the synagogue that morning, and yet they despised and rejected Jesus. 
And I dare say there are many church folk that despise and reject Jesus. They're embarrassed of Jesus. They want religion, but they've not been transformed by Jesus and the gospel. They have been so influenced by the world that they focus on the unbelievable aspects of Jesus, His miracles, His virgin birth, His resurrection, His divinity, and they say that that's too unbelievable to believe. They are weak, professing Christians that don't possess true salvation. They will never bear fruit, and they constantly stumble at Jesus and scandalize the church. The reason that the church is weak in many quarters of the world today is because they do not value the prophetic word of Jesus Christ. They despise His prophetic word, and in despising His prophetic word, they're despising Him. They despise the notion of the miraculous, His resurrection, His virgin birth. They reduce Jesus to simply a teacher or a philosopher, or perhaps even a wonder-working first-century miracle worker, but not the Savior, not the Messiah, not the one who has come to atone for sins. But that is exactly who Jesus is. And if you are not careful in your skepticism, you will reject the only one that can save you from your sins. That is the message of this account. But Jesus wants the people in His hometown to know that their disbelief fits what we commonly see among religious people. So we move from the prophetic duty and the prophetic despising, number three, Verse 4, the prophetic disappointment. The central verse, verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. We have a similar expression, don't we? We say that familiarity breeds contempt. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. When I was 23, I moved my wife Corey and Gracie to my home state of West Virginia, and I began pastoring in a town that's situated outside of the town I grew up in, Morgantown, West Virginia. And I remembered uh, one day in Morgantown, walking down High Street and walking into the dry cleaners to pick something up. And as I walked in, I noticed that my fifth grade teacher was standing there in the dry cleaners, and I patiently waited. I hadn't seen her in years for her to walk out. And when she turned to walk out, I said, Mrs. So-and-so, do you remember me? And she kind of looked me up and down, and she said, Andrew Smith, I have not seen you in years. Where have you been? And I said, well, I've been off to school, and now I've come back. I've taken a new job here nearby She said, well, you have to tell me, as any teacher or educator would want to know, what was your degree in? What what is your job? And I told her that I was a minister. And I was pastoring a small congregation just outside of Morgantown. I could not pick her jaw up to shut it fast enough. And I thought to myself, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown. It is interesting that Jesus felt that way, isn't it? Borrowing this Hebrew adage, also found in Greco-Roman culture, what is amazing 
is that this was true with Jesus. I mean, we understand that it's true about us. The more we get to know someone, the more we see their sins, their inconsistencies, their flaws. But how in the world could these people be so familiar with Jesus that they would not honor Him, the pure, holy Son of God? And yet that was true. Jesus is pointing out the prophetic despising that He endured as the prophet of prophets. You remember those disciples that walked uh, on the Emmaus Road and Jesus approaches them and they don't recognize Him. And He says, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about things. What things? Well, things concerning Jesus uh, of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and mighty in word before God and all the people. It was undeniable that He was mighty in deed, mighty in word, and yet He is despised. What disappointment must have filled our Lord's heart. Here is the humble Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would ride on a baby colt into the city. The one who would carry His own cross, despised and rejected, the prophet of all prophets. What a disappointment for the people of His own hometown to reject Him. We can't afford to pick and choose the things that we accept that Jesus says. The so-called hard sayings of Jesus. Listen, if Jesus says it, it must be true. Let me say as respectfully as I can, your opinions don't matter. Your analysis doesn't matter. Your scrutiny doesn't matter. Your unbelief doesn't matter. If Jesus says it, we must accept it. In simple faith. And by the way, Jesus says He's the only way. You must believe that or you can't be saved. Jesus says more about hell than He does heaven, which means it's a real place that people will go and they will die in their sins unless they listen to His prophetic voice. Jesus speaks of sin maybe more than any other preacher in all of history in order to show us our need of salvation. He is a messenger of hope. He is a preacher of of hopefulness to the hopeless and life to the dead. And apart from believing Him, all people are doomed in their sins. What disappointment must have filled this prophet's heart, a prophet of all prophets. But as we look at the conclusion of this story, it gets sadder and sadder. We have seen a prophetic duty and a prophetic despising and a prophetic disappointment that included his own relative's rejecting him in his own household, now to a prophetic departure. Prophetic departure. These are some of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible, and they're critical. Verse 5 says, He could do no mighty work there, except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed him. Now this needs to be understood in light of what verse 6 says. Just skip ahead to it quickly. He marveled because of their unbelief. It was their unbelief that prevented him from performing a mighty work there. It's not that Jesus could do no mighty work there because He was supernaturally unable to, but because He was morally unable to. He didn't all of a sudden lose His power to heal. He didn't all of a sudden lose His power to save. The people did not put this preacher, this prophet, this Savior in a straitjacket. No, He could not, listen to this, because He would not. He would not do the miraculous deeds akin to the ones He did in Capernaum because He would not reward a lack of faith. He would not. He could not, morally speaking, because of their brazen rejection of Him. 
This was God's judgment on this town. This is God withholding his Holy Spirit because they were a stiff-necked people who would eventually crucify him. Just as Stephen said, which one of the fathers have you not persecuted? And now you're going to crucify the final prophet and Savior, Jesus Christ. These Nazarenes were the most privileged and enlightened people of all. They saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, they knew Jesus, and they rejected Jesus. And so now Jesus will, listen to this, reject them. He will depart. This is a prophetic departure. Notice verse 6. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. You didn't think that Jesus, the Son of God, could be shocked by anything, but he is. He has marveled the depth of unbelief among those who knew him best. And so it says, he went about among the villages teaching. It's important to understand that faith was not necessary for Jesus to perform a healing. There were many that Jesus healed who didn't have faith. There are summary verses in the Bible, Matthew 9.35, Matthew 14, verses 13 and 14, Matthew 14, verses 34 through 36, which clearly indicate that the crowds mobbed him. They had no faith in him as the Son of God. They just wanted to be healed and they had nothing better to do and no one else to go to, so they touched him. Not all of them had faith. Many touched him or were touched by him and healed by him and walked away. They didn't have faith in Jesus, but they were healed. Why? Because Jesus is compassionate. And not only that, but the accumulation of such miracles, listen to this, testified to his identity as the Son of God and would serve as evidential testimony in God's court for just judgment. And just judgment would come upon Nazareth because of their rejection of him. John 5.36 says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He was the heaven-sent prophet, mighty in works, mighty in words, rejected. So Jesus would walk out on His own hometown. This is a walk of judgment. It's also a walk of mercy. You remember in uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Do not give the dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. You remember what Mark said in chapter 4 and verse 24, quoting the words of Jesus, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Nazareth had Jesus, their homegrown preacher. Nazareth had the Savior. Nazareth had Him in their presence, and now He is being removed. A prophetic departure, an act of judgment, yes, but also an act of mercy, because the more that He was around them, the worse their judgment would be, because they would constantly reject Him. That's why He said that the judgment of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum would be worse than even that of Sodom and Gomorrah because they saw the Savior, heard the Savior, rejected the Savior, didn't have belief. Jesus is showing mercy on those that He knew His whole life by leaving this town. Judgment, yes. Mercy as well. They assessed Him according to His humanity, did they not? And in that, they lost His deity. 
And the Bible says here in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. He was shocked because of their unbelief. That word is only used really one other time describing one other event in the life of our Lord, and that was with the faith of the Roman centurion. Jesus marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, speaking about the Roman centurion, no one in Israel have I found such faith. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. Here he marvels at the lack of faith of those in Nazareth. Hear me out this morning. If you want to marvel Jesus, marvel Him by your belief, not your unbelief, because one results in salvation and one results in damnation. Marvel Him with your belief. He went about among the villages teaching. This is a prophetic departure. He's shaking the dust off His feet of Nazareth. Notice with me in verses 10 and 11, after He sends the twelve out, He says, Whenever you enter a house... Stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. He told the disciples to do that, but he himself does it with Nazareth. Really stunning. I'm close with a prominent pastor who has had more influence on me personally than any other preacher in the world. Years ago, he was kicked out of his church for faithfully preaching the prophetic word. He tells the story of the Sunday that he resigned. He filed out of the church with the church following him out the door. He had his son pull the car up. He got in the car. He drove away as the church watched, but before he pulled out of the parking lot, the car stopped. He got out of the car. He took his shoes off. He held them away from his preacher uniform, and he shook the dust off his feet as a sign of judgment on that church because God had written Ichabod. The glory of God had departed. You know, it's one thing for a child of God to do that. It's quite another thing for the Son of God to shake the dust off His feet and to say, you want your sin? You can have it. I'm out of here. Prophetic departure. These people stumbled at Jesus And he marveled at their unbelief. Don't say goodbye to Jesus today. When I was a kid, I used to hide when it was time to say goodbye to my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, because I knew that it would be a long time before I saw them. And sadness would fill my heart. And even today, I hate goodbyes, but I can think of no sadder departure in all of the world than to see Jesus walk out because of a sinner that rejects his message. You've heard his prophetic voice this morning. You've heard his gospel. If you reject him today, you've rejected salvation. Don't let Jesus be a stumbling block to you. He should be a springboard into heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to me but through. No man can come to the Father but through me. Don't say goodbye today without speaking with someone about the gospel because saying goodbye today without the gospel is saying goodbye to Jesus. And to leave without Jesus is to leave your soul in the danger of hell. Look to heaven. Jesus is looking down. He has spoken. And the Bible is clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For He only rewards those who seek Him. He is the final prophet. He is the one who has spoken. 
His word is final. And He has words of grace and mercy. It is only by the secret operation of the Spirit that you can respond to that. But if you sense the weight of the conviction of your sin and your need for a Savior, don't suppress the voice of Christ. Run to Him. He will free you. He will deliver you. He will embrace you. He will forgive you. And you will become a child of God. Let us pray. Father, Your Word is very powerful, very penetrating, very clear. What a sad episode. Lord, sad from a human standpoint to think that the human side of Jesus would be treated so roughly and so insensitively by those who knew Him best. But we must get even beyond that sort of outward worldly rejection and remember that this wasn't just the rejection of someone they knew. This was a rejection of God. God in human flesh. A rejection of His Word. A rejection of His message. A rejection of truth. Father, as Your people, we are to be people of truth. We are to be people of the prophetic Word. We are to love Your Word, embrace Your Word, cherish Your Word, and obey Your Word. We are not what we ought to be. Lord, we... We don't faithfully speak your word enough to the unbelieving world. We don't faithfully stand for truth enough. We don't defend doctrine enough. Lord, we don't submit to the word of your truth enough. And yet in all of this, we sense your grace. You love us and have embraced us. How could we disappoint you? Lord, as the people of Nazareth disappointed you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in holding forth the prophetic word. Our prayer this morning is that there would be no one present who leaves, Lord, apart from submitting to the prophetic word, to the gospel, and finding salvation in Christ. We love you and we thank you for such a wonderful time of worship. As we close it with this hymn, Lord, help us to meditate and be reflective upon all that you've taught us by your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.